Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Okay, Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. Can you open your exercise books, please? You've got a 1,500-word essay to do. I'd like you to choose one of the themes from the board and start to plan it. Ah, the Wanderer returns. That's another two weeks behind. See me after class. So where have you been this time? Somewhere warm. Yeah, your mum's bed. Okay, okay, settle down. Are we a comedian as well now, Michael? As I was saying, choose one of the themes on the board and start planning your essay. Yeah, I've got one for you. How many teachers does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> huh? All right, how many depressed people does it take to change a light bulb? Doesn't matter, it's always dark, isn't it? <laughs> when you wake up, you've got a dead arm. You can't control it, can't make it do anything. Imagine that in your whole body, in your mind, your whole life. Remember when I was off school? Remember all the jokes? What options you choosing, Michael? Getting out of bed? Staying awake? Coming to class? Only that's when I was so low. Getting out of bed wasn't an option for me. Even on Facebook. Changing my status to still skiving. It's funny, isn't it? It just makes it a little harder. Sometimes it's already too hard. You lot are my mates, right? Uh, welcome to Conversations at the Carter Center. Uh, this is always an event that's, that's great fun for us to put on, though we're going to be talking about a pretty serious uh, subject tonight. That video that you saw was part of a national campaign in the UK that's underway, and you saw the, the campaign um, uh, reflected. That video had such an impact that they are actually going to translate it for American English, for those of us who don't speak British English very well. But I think the imagery itself certainly conveyed a message, and a message uh, we want to talk about. <clears throat> One of the, the core activities of the Carter Center Mental Health Program and a lifelong interest of Mrs. Carter's 
um, is the reduction of stigma and discrimination against people who have mental illnesses. And make no mistake about it, they're inextricably linked. Where you have stigma, you will have discrimination, whether it's in insurance parity or in other forms, or in the forms like you saw tonight. This is a, uh, we're very pleased to have an opportunity to have this conversation with all of you and share with our neighbors some of the work that, that uh, is going on here. Uh, Mrs. Carter sends her regrets that she cannot be here tonight. Um, she really wanted to be with us, but had another engagement that uh, she could not get out of. So is not able to be with us, but she's with us in spirit as always. Uh, Conversations is a series of discussions held at the center to discuss our peace and health programs activities. And it's a chance to meet you and you meet us and, and have a, a more candid conversation about the work that we do. We are uh, webcasting this live, uh, so we hope we'll have a lot of guests coming in live. Uh, we made outreach to a number of colleges and universities since the theme today is really about young people. And we wanted to, to talk about this particular challenges of young adults, maybe mostly college-age adults, who are working through these issues in their own lives and haven't tell in their own voices uh, and in their own images. And that's what we'll do this evening. Uh, almost all of our events are open to the public. Um, and, and we welcome uh, you to take a look at our website and take a look at other conversations events. They're always interesting and informative, and, and we welcome for you to do that. Um, your, the audience will see young people walking around with pads and pencils. If you have questions during the Q&A session, please write them down, and we'll get the questions uh, to the panelists, and we encourage you to do that. And finally, for my part, I want to uh, take a, a special moment to um, uh, ask your indulgence uh, to tell you a little bit about how this happened, uh, this particular event happened. Um, this was the idea of our youngest staff person, and she planned it all. This is her baby, um, <clears throat> with some guidance uh, from Rebecca Palpin, uh, our interns in this current semester, they pulled it off. So uh, congratulations, Tina, on job well done. And she's just out of that zone uh, that we'll be talking about tonight. She's off for parents and insurance and on your own. Um, at this point, I'd like to introduce and, and welcome up my colleague, Rebecca Palpin, who's the assistant director for our stigma, anti-stigma activities and our journalism fellowship program. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Pelpent Shimkutz, and it is such a pleasure to see each one of you here tonight to talk about an issue that is so important to probably all of us in this room, that's why you're here, and to those of you that are joining us on the web. Because mental illnesses, they either affect us or they affect somebody that we love. And my guess is out there tonight, there are some of you that have someone in your life or maybe yourself that find um, yourself in a position where you're trying to figure out what that next step is uh, because you're experiencing symptoms or someone you love, maybe it's your child, is having those symptoms. So it's my hope tonight and as we dreamed about tonight and the brainstorming that we did, we really wanted to have an evening where we could have an honest conversation about mental health and mental illnesses because we can't have those very often in the public sphere. Hopefully, one day very soon we can. Um, but we can offer real tips 
about what to do in a situation with a young adult who has a mental illness, things that you can actually go home and do tomorrow or that can be done on college campuses. So um, with the format that we're going to use tonight will be conversational in nature. Uh, we've found in the years that I've been working with journalists here at the Carter Center through the Rosalind Carter Fellowships for Mental Health Journalism, I've been at it almost 10 years now, it's so hard for me to believe that, that one of the most powerful ways of reducing stigma and discrimination is through the personal story. So tonight, we're going to tell some personal stories, personal stories through multimedia, through photography, uh, through the work of Rosalind Carter Fellow, Billy Howard, as well as very courageous stories um, told by Kimberly, who's with us tonight. So it's my honor and privilege to kind of walk you through this evening uh, to introduce uh, our conversationalists, as well as the order in which we'll go tonight. So first, um, the panelists. Kimberly Miner is here with us tonight. She is, you will see a video of uh, Kimberly's story. She was profiled by Rosalind Carter Fellow, Billy Howard. She's from Lithonia, Georgia, our own Georgian. And she began her college education as a student at Clark Atlanta University. She was diagnosed with a chemical imbalance during her freshman year which you will find uh, through some of the conversation tonight that this is not an uncommon thing uh, with, with young adults uh, going off on, on their own for the first time. And she was forced to take some time away from school. She's now a student at Georgia Perimeter College and she's planning on graduating this spring, May 2013, with a journalism degree. And she's using the same love and sh care she received by her family and by her parents to enlighten her peers and community about mental illness. Billy Howard is our second conversationalist. He's a local documentary photographer, writer, and videographer. He's the creator of Step Inside My Head, and you will hear much more about Step Inside My Head tonight. And he received a Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism in 2011, so he's a part of our Carter Center family. And among his many projects, he's produced the first full-length photographic book on people living with AIDS, and he's documented global health and poverty issues for the CDC, CARE, and the Carter Center. Thirdly, Allison Malman is with us, and she's the founder and executive director of Active Minds, Inc., the leading national organization that mobilizes students as a driving force to change this perception about mental health and mental illnesses on college campuses. She's been named one of the top 15 global emerging social innovators by Ashaka Changemakers and American Express. And she's uh, been named Washingtonian of the Year in 2007 by Washingtonian Magazine and a woman of distinction by the American Association of University of Women. And then finally, Dr. Mark McLeod is with us, and he's worked at the Emory Student Counseling Center for over 30 years and has served as director for over 20 years. His professional interests include interpersonal therapy, consultation, and the impact of study abroad experiences on self-esteem and self-efficacy. He's been involved in the implementation of Emory's Mental Health Task Force, 
which plans uh, to include community-based efforts to identify and treat faculty, staff, and students who may be struggling with mental health concerns. So the order in which we'll go tonight is we'll, we will have blocks of video between these conversations so you can hear and experience some of these personal stories of young adults who are living in recovery from mental illnesses. And the first conversation that we will have will be with Billy and Kimberly, who will discuss Kimberly's personal story, but Billy also will talk about how he developed the project, um, the step inside my head, and the importance of personal stories and seeking help. Then the second conversation will be between Allison and Mark and discussing steps that their organizations have taken to address these issues. Then finally, we will have Q&A with the full group at the end, and we're going to leave plenty of time. So as, you, as we walk through this evening, write your questions down on those cards that the volunteers have handed out. They'll be circulating at times throughout the evening. Be sure to give them those questions, and we'll, we'll get to as many uh, questions as we can at the end of the evening. So at this part of the program, we'll see our first video from Step Inside My Head. Uh, that is Kimberly's story. Thank you. My name is Kimberly. I am 23 years old. And at the age of 18, I was diagnosed with a chemical imbalance. So I began feeling differently on the start of a work day as an intern. Something about that day was off. It felt really odd. And I um, immediately started to feel like people were out to get me. I felt uh, paranoid. And something came over me and it said, these people are trying to test me. And so I just decided to quit. And at this time, I didn't know that I was becoming ill. This was when the illness was sort of starting to take form within my body. So while all this was happening, I wasn't the Kimberly that you're seeing now. So it wasn't like a normal person who just went in and said, oh, I quit today. This was the illness sort of taking form. And really, none of that, none of that, um, what I uh, perceived as happening was really happening. It was a normal day. So when I went into my boss's office, um, I told her I was leaving and a few people came in and everyone was really confused about what was going on. And I remember even one, one of my closer supervisors even began to cry, um, but I didn't know what was going on. No one knew what was going on. I remember very vividly, I pulled up in the driveway and my dad came to meet me outside like he normally does to help me with my bags. and. I just kind of was out of it and I told him that I, I left the job, I quit um, and I was just, I couldn't really explain it because I didn't know what was going on. All I kept saying was I quit and I, I don't know, I just, I left the job and that night I stayed at my parents' house and I walked into my father's bedroom to speak with him in the wee hours of the night and he recounted that there was a third voice that came out, it wasn't my voice. It wasn't even a feminine voice. It was like this, he calls it a demonic voice. And um, that's when he kind of knew right then and there that I needed to seek some assistance. My parents figured it out very quickly. I think that they knew just for the simple fact that 
From the time I got home, I wouldn't. I never wound down. I was wired, and um, I wouldn't go to sleep. I stayed up. I was sort of ranting, just babbling almost. I wasn't really talking about anything but just a job, and then I left it. And uh, so it was very um, instantaneous. Yeah, they kind of picked up on it really, really quickly. And I went to the doctor's office, and I remember thinking then that he was out to get me. Uh, that the physician, I thought that everybody was just doing something to me. So the journey from being in another, in my own world, and thinking that everyone had a hidden agenda, uh, to sort of realizing that that was all false, it took a long time to understand that, that all of that was make-believe, and it was all in my head. That was just the new normal for me. When I had my darkest hour, it was when I sort of snapped back into reality because it's like, oh my goodness, I'm back functioning in society again as the person who I was before, but I can't even recall this whole bracket of time where I was out of my body. So initially when I uh, became ill, I left Clark Atlanta after my freshman year and I stayed out of school for about two years and then I re-enrolled at a community college, uh, Georgia Perimeter College. And I remember the first, that first semester I worked with the, the Disability Service Program. I uh, got all A's, I got a 4.0 that semester, so I figured, well, obviously this is kind of what I need to do, at least to get my footing uh, back. And so um, I've, I've stuck with it. I um, promote it even. I tell other students about it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You can you can have a mental illness like me or any type of illness that prevents you from performing at your best academic ability. I say, why not try something that may aid you in, into doing better and performing at, at your peak? So it, it definitely worked for me. Uh, although I feel like I'm stable, I feel like mental health in whatever capacity, whether it's uh, advocating it, is always going to be a part of my life. I'll never discard of uh, the diagnosis that was given to me. I'll never sort of sweep it under the rug. It'll always be a part of me. There's no blueprint to life. There's no ABC one, two, three step. And that's what I initially thought there was to life. I thought that there was a path that everyone stuck with. But this is your path and just be proud of it. Don't be ashamed. Take your medicine. If you're on medicine, take it. Do what the doctor prescribes you to do. Believe me that uh, your mental health is always at work and it always needs some nutrition and it always needs just a, a, good, a good push in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Yes. Yes. And 
Um, I just wanted to acknowledge your parents in the front row here mm -hmm. and what a powerful <laughs> support they have been to you. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, I will just serve as a facilitator in this conversation. These two, they know what they want to say, so I'm going to take a little bit of a back seat here. I think I will just start us out by asking Billy to tell us a little bit about Step Inside My Head so that the audience kind of understands the frame around which these stories are told, your role in this, and then we can start the conversation about Kimberly. Well, thanks. I, I want to thank the Carter Center for having us here and for sharing, sharing all these stories that have been so powerful, and Kimberly's in particular was just a, such an honest representation of what she went through and sharing that. And, and the reason that that's important to me, I, I started um, working on issues around health care in the mid-'80s when I, um, I'm, my dentist uh, became ill with um, AIDS, and he left, the, he left Atlanta and didn't tell anybody where he was going, and I tried to find him. And after he died, his, um, one of his good friends sent me a note saying that he had gotten my notes, but that he was so afraid that people would reject him, not because of who he was, but because of his disease, that he just didn't have the courage to reach out and, uh, and be embraced by the fellowship of the people that loved him and cared about him. He thought he would lose that. And the sad thing about that time in, in our history is that, that he likely would have faced some of that uh, repercussions because of the stigma of the disease. I photographed a lot of people. I had them write their stories on, on the actual photograph and, and shared those. And what I found, uh, have found since then is as more stories were shared and as people became to know actual individuals and the people that were suffering with HIV AIDS over the next 20, 30 years, the stigma behind the disease started to d dissipate and, and they became more accepted for who they were as people, not because of the illness that they had. And I, I thought that was very, uh, it was just a, a, has been a powerful observation for me. And when this opportunity came up, with the Carter Center Fellowships for Mental Health Journalism and the idea that, that their, one of their main goals is to dispel the stigma that surrounds mental illness, I just saw it as a great opportunity to participate in a small way and, and share some stories and introduce people to, to individuals that had suffered from mental illness. It's a, it's a disease like any other disease and even in the in the beginning of the century, if you had cancer, you couldn't tell anybody about that. It's, it's by telling these stories that I think you open, open minds and hearts and people then realize, well, this isn't, this isn't a bad person or a, or a different person. It's a person that's suffering. So, so that's how I started the project of Step Inside My Head, where I um, have been interviewing and um, videotaping, writing short stories that are on the website, and uh, sharing these videos so that people can be introduced in a, in a very personal way to the individuals and participants. And I'll tell you that um, Kimberly did not really make it easy on me. <laughs> she, um, I, I interviewed her for, a, for over an hour, and, and everything she said Sorry, but it's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was so articulate, and and her message 
on every level was, was spot on. And so when I came down to the editing process, I had to get these stories down to my, my original goal was three or four minutes. And I, I got uh, Kimberly's down to about 25 minutes. <laughs> and, and then every single thing that I cut was painful. It was hard because it was, I felt like her, her voice was so important, what she had to say was so important. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity tonight because I'm gonna, I'm gonna have her share with you and ask her some questions about some of those things that I was not able to include in our, in our discussion. And um, one of those, uh, and something that I think is on everybody's mind anyway, is mental health and media. And, and Kimberly had talked to me about the effect of the only time she saw anything about anybody that suffered from a mental illness. It was always the, the violent acts of people that were really far gone into particular mental illnesses. And that doesn't represent 99% of the stories or her story. And uh, she, she had some things to say about that, and I thought I'd ask you to share that. Sure. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, pertaining to, to the media and stigma, I think um, in my, my condition was severe, obviously. Um, everyone is not going to have schizophrenia. Everyone is not going to be bipolar. But I think for the most part that everyone can be honest with ourselves and say, I've been stressed, um, I've been depressed, and um, I've had some anxiety in my lifetime. So uh, severe mental health does not always correlate with severe mental illnesses, although there are people living with severe mental illnesses, and a lot of them are successful. Um, and I think, furthermore, severe mental illnesses don't directly correlate to violence, to negativity, to tragedy. Um, Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> Isaac Newton, uh, Winston Churchill, they've all had um, some, some issues with mental health. Geniuses, people who have you know, lived pretty successful lives. So I think that um, if we all can kind of find a space to relate to mental health outside of severe mental illnesses, we can all attach ourselves to mental health in some way. Another thing that you talked about that, that I thought was really interesting was speaking of, of how mental illness, how you felt mental illness was not um, discussed a lot or uh, dealt with very well at this time in the African-American community oh, sure. and your own experiences with, with that. And um, from all of our conversations that we've had, it seems like one of your goals is to shine a brighter, what you actually said, you wanted to shine a brighter light yeah. on mental health and mental illness in the African-American Definitely. I think um, a lot of times in the African-American community, we want to go to uh, our religious beliefs. We want to go to uh, church and God, and all of those things are great. I am Christian. Believe you me, my parents prayed and prayed and prayed and probably until they couldn't pray anymore. <laughs> but they had to be realistic, and 
I had to go and get help. I had to go and see a psychiatrist. I had to go and see a therapist. I can't tell you how many doctors I've sat in front of, and that's been a major part of my recovery. So a lot of times in the African-American community, we want to do like a kumbaya, you'll feel better, (laughs) and that just doesn't work. Well, you were talking about your parents, and and, uh, I'm I'm really pleased to see them in the audience, Geneva and Steve. Thank you for being here. And one of the things I was uh, immediately struck with when I interviewed you was you said the first, the very first thing you did after you left that job was to drive home. Yeah. And on that very night, mm-hmm. your parents knew something was wrong to the point that they took you for help the next day, I think. Mm-hmm. And so one of my questions with that, to follow that up, is how important was family in your recovery and then what would you say to another young person that was maybe dealing with um, a mental condition who didn't have that strong family support? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, first, I'll um, talk about those who may not have the same support that I did, um, especially college students, young adults who are at college, when we think about think about the university or college that you went to or that a friend went to, um, student government association, football team, basketball team, those things are plastered everywhere. You can walk down a hallway, you see a flyer, you see a poster, next game, next week, battle of this, battle of that. Uh, join student government, come to this cookout on the, on the lawn. But you rarely see promotion about counseling services, um, disability services on college campuses. And um, for certain reasons, I'm sure, they're always tucked away in a little cubby. <laughs> where no one can see you because there's stigma attached to mental health, mental illnesses. And so as students or anybody, you don't necessarily want people to see you going to seek that help. But I think it's important that those services, the counseling services and the disability services kind of just throw yourselves out there into the pool of advertisement, just like every other glee club or Whoever, because you really, really can save somebody's life. I don't think the sort of um, secrecy, I don't think that it's, it's that important to the point where you kind of hide off in a, in a corner because people really need this assistance. And when I go into classrooms and talk um, to college students about my story, I let them know about our counseling services on our campus, and our counselor is here. Um, <laughs> but I let them know that they can go get individual counseling, they can go with their boyfriend or girlfriend, they can bring family members, and a lot of times, guess what, the students aren't going to be like, oh, I'm about to go right now. <laughs> but I have, I have seen students take their pens and jot down where she's located, her phone number. So people really need it. And um, my parents and my family who's here, they're just awesome. I don't know. I don't know. They, we never had any, from what we know, any mental health 
illnesses or conditions or anything like that in our family. So this was brand new. When I walked into my father's bedroom that night, this was, I'm sure, his socks literally fell off. <laughs> because this was the first time he had ever been introduced to that. And even along the journey, we had to learn. I remember them going to the library to buy books to learn about my condition. So, Can I just interject here? Because I'm, I'm thinking about our audience tonight and our web audience out there. And this is happening right at a time when so many students leave home for the first time. Oh, many of them go hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away sure. from their families, from their support systems. Mm -hmm. um, what recommendations would you have for, for people in your, your situation who maybe don't have easy access to their parents or to close family friends? Well, um, I definitely would encourage them and, and let them know that they may, they may not have those um, family members close by, but they certainly have a community of people there who will help them. And that's why it's so important to, for those people who can help those resources to put their contact information in the schools so that students who don't have a family that they can drive 30 minutes home like I did to get those, to get help from their parents. Um, they know that those resources are there for them. And um, as college students, we're under a lot of pressure. I think when we go off to college, we think we know everything. And um, some, a lot of times our parents, they feel that this is the time to take the training wheels off. But I say put a heavy-duty set of training wheels on <laughs> because the fact of the matter is 1,100 college students commit suicide every year. So by that mm -hmm. fact alone, it's evident that we still need um, a helping hand throughout our college career. Mm -hmm. I can definitely tell you, one of the most popular questions I get as a college student is, when do you graduate? And then when you tell people that, they say, oh, great, what's next? So you, you <laughs> You're feeling pressure all of the time to be better, to cross the finish line. And, it's, and everybody feels pressured in their daily lives to pay bills, to go to work. But in college, especially for parents and community leaders and churches, just know that just because they're in college and they made that milestone, don't let their hand go. Hold, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. See, I told you she made it hard on me. <laughs> you know, but actually, tonight is the opposite. This really makes it easy on me because she has so many great things to say. Yeah. And Kimberly, when she, was, um, when she started college at Clark Atlanta, she was, offered, uh, she was the first freshman to be offered a prestigious internship in the communications department at Morehouse College. And, and that's where she was when this... Um, onset of, of the chemical imbalance uh, showed itself. And so what I, what I wanted to ask you, and I, and I think it's so interesting that so many people are diagnosed with mental illness in this age range, up to around 24, up, up, you know, the 18 to 24, there's a lot of that. What, what role do you think stress plays in that? I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but... 
Um, you, you, you put yourself under a lot of oh, pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Freshman year at Clark Atlanta, I took on an internship at uh, Morehouse School of Medicine. And um, I remember at the time, at the time that actually my imbalance occurred, I would say a week before then, one of my supervisors said, you know what, take the next week off. And I was like, no way, I don't need that. I thought that I was like a workaholic, a perfectionist, and I, want, I remember I was in the middle of doing a project. So I wanted to complete that project first. And um, I imagined that maybe if I had taken that time off to sort of you know, relax and regroup and then come back to work, I may have been okay, maybe not. But as far as uh, stress, I definitely took on a lot. Um, I think as young people, or anybody for that matter, we never really take the time to congratulate ourselves and say, oh, well, you did get that job. You did get that promotion or that internship. Pat yourself on the back. We're always sort of trying to do something more. Um, But I hope that answered the question. Oh, yeah. I, w I wanted to say one other thing. What? Go ahead. No, no, no. Um, this was it. I'm so sorry. But a lot of times we get young people are driven by what their peers are doing and what their peers are accomplishing. So if we see a tweet, and I'm just speaking honestly, I'm, I'm sure others would agree, but if we see a tweet, that one of our friends just landed the internship that they've always wanted. Or if we get a phone call and my girlfriend is like, Kim, I just got that job, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, congratulations, I'm so proud. And then when I hang up, I'm going to say, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we always feel like we have to sort of compete. And that's a lot of stress. So I would say, you know, just congratulate yourself. Go do something fun for once. Put the books down. I think that's good advice for all of us. <laughs> you, you, um, there are so many things that you said that, uh, that I want to touch on. Um, but in, in terms specifically about stigma and, and mental illness, you had some really, really great analogies about um, how people with mental illness are sort of invisible. And, and did you lose friendships and and how did that happen? Did, did people come to understand mental illness a little bit better through you and have you regained some of those and and what was that like in that period when when people saw you and you looked normal but they didn't understand what was going on that was probably the hardest part um Going through the illness was hard, harder for my parents and people around me than it was for me because this was just who I was at this time. So when I did um, become stable and was ready to re-enter society, re ready to go back to school, when I talked to my friends, mind you, I'd been out of school for a while, and so um, when I went to explain to them what happened, it wasn't like saying oh, guys, I was gone because um, I had a family member pass away or I had pneumonia or I was in a tragic car accident or somebody I know was in a tragic car accident. 
Um, so trying to explain mental, mental illness and chemical imbalance, that was like, phew, like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of just confused, blank faces. Um, I've, I had even my closest friend, I remember he said, one of my closest friends, we thought you were raped or something. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because that's just something that people can kind of relate to better than mental illness. Mm. So it was definitely it was definitely a challenge. I lost friends for sure. Social media, um, I lost, I had, there was like a spat and this girl, a friend of mine at the time said something like, oh, uh, you're psychotic or something like that. So it was definitely um, a challenge. When I joined Active Minds, that definitely gave me a platform to um, talk to students about mental health and mental illness as a whole from a knowledgeable standpoint. So it wasn't me just rambling on about what happened. It was facts, it was statistics, and they're like, oh, I get it now. Um, so definitely Active Minds has played a huge part in my connection with young adults and talking with them about mental health and going into the classrooms. And I'm effective. The best way I can be effective with young adults is by being completely transparent. And that's what I try to do. Well, you, you do that very well. And did you? We've, we've got to wrap it up, but okay. ask your last question. <laughs> wow. Well, um, it, no it, it just goes really fast. Um, <laughs> I guess they're, they're a bunch, but I was really struck when you talked about your darkest hour being when you were actually coming back out of the illness and getting back to your normal self, and you went through some depression then, and, and that, that was really, really a hard time for you. And do you, do you find, do you, do you think the illness is, is there anything positive that now you look back at? I mean, you've become a spokesperson. It's it's something that you're not running away from. Mm -hmm. You're helping other people understand mm -hmm. what's going on. I, I don't know if you can answer this, but <clears throat> has it become something that that you define in your life in a positive sense? Oh, goodness, yeah. Because, like I said earlier, mental health is not all about a chemical imbalance or bipolar, or it's not always extreme. Mental health is when you wake up in the morning and you try to go about your day and you didn't eat breakfast and you go sit in your professor's class and you can, you're like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> you can't concentrate because you didn't eat. Men mental health, it's affected to that, even that small degree. Well, thank you so much, and I hope that we can continue this conversation in the Q&A as we open it up to all of you. I know I have a burning question, so <laughs> I might ask the first question in Q&A. Um, but right now, we will have our next video um, from Step Inside My Head, and it tells the story of Gracie, who is another young woman that Billy profiled. And then after the video, Dr. Mark McLeod and Allison Malman will take the stage and as I said earlier, talk about what their organizations are doing to help raise awareness about mental health and reduce stigma. So now the video.
Um, my name is Gracie, I'm 19, and I have bipolar anxiety disorder, depression, ADD. Okay, well, um, I definitely felt different pretty much my whole life. Um, I've had a lot of problems throughout my life. My my main problem is bipolar and anxiety. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 14, but I knew that I was bipolar after watching my dad. Um, because he's bipolar as well, so I figured out that I was bipolar when I was like 11. And my anxiety sort of developed about a year ago. Usually, I will tell people right away that I'm bipolar because I feel like if I keep it a secret, it'll seem like a much bigger deal when they find out. Uh, and I'm not ashamed of it, so I just let them know. Actually, when I was first diagnosed, I thought that bipolar was a terminal disease because I inherited from my father and my grandfather, and when I was four, my grandfather killed himself, and my father's attempted suicide a couple times. Um, the only one I know the details of was when I was 11, but I've never considered suicide because I understand exactly what it does to a family and how much pain it causes the people that love you, so I've never contemplated it even a little bit. But I do understand I've been to the very bottom of the very bottom and I felt like it's like down there and I do get why it would seem like an easy escape but it's not. It's the most selfish thing you could possibly do and it's just it ruins the lives of the people around you. I just want to mention how thirsty I am, and I thought there was going to be water here. And Allison said, I don't think there's any water in the glass. And I said, that can't be. Okay. I'm okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Allison Malman. I am executive director and founder of Active Minds. And I often find it easiest to talk about what Active Minds is and why we do it. Um, by telling my own story. So I'm going to stray from um, what I was thinking I was going to do and just tell a little bit about the, the founding of Active Minds um, because it helps me explain kind of who we are. Um, Kimberly has already done such a beautiful job of it, and so I have, I've, I'm left without much to talk about that's new. Um, Active Minds is a national organization that's headquartered in Washington, D.C., um, that's focused on empowering students to speak openly about mental health in order to educate others and encourage help seeking. Um, and we do that primarily through a model of chapters, of student-run chapters on college and university campuses. We now have chapters on about 400 campuses around the country. Um, all student groups, volunteer-driven, um, students who have stories to share, have, have been impacted by mental health, mental illness, um, students who are interested in psychology, social work, nursing, um, helping fields, who are interested in learning more about what it means to be in this field. Um, and it's, th it's through these students that we accomplish what we do. Um, we started when, when I was a student, I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania when I first started the student group. 
Um, I, my brother Brian uh, is four years older than me, had grown up with me in a um, pretty affluent area outside of Washington, D.C. Um, he was a star student in our public high school system, got into his top choice college in New York City um, at Columbia University. Brian did what we are all told we're supposed to do, and Kimberly has so eloquently discussed, um, to, you know, to make college the best time of your life. And, and I put that in quotes because we all look back on college and say, oh, that was the best time of my life. Or you see a college student in front of you and you say, oh, you're going to have the best time of your life. Well, as you've heard from Kimberly, and as you'll actually remember, it's not actually the best time of your life. And what's unfortunate is that students hear that, and they hear that message, and they're, they think, oh, it's supposed to be the best time of my life. And as soon as they start feeling like it's not, and they start feeling that stress and that pressure, that depression, they want to hide it even more because it seems like everybody around them is having the best time of their lives. And, and if they don't show that they're having the best time of their lives, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to disappoint their parents, or they're going to disappoint all those people who think they're supposed to be having a great time, so they hide it. Um, so Brian did what we're supposed to do to make college the best time of our lives. He joined different student groups. He became a star student. Um, any variety of things I could talk about it for forever. Um, Brian started experiencing a pretty severe mental health issue in his freshman year of college, but hid it from all of us. Um, my mother is a social worker. Um, we've already heard about how helpful a family can be. And even from the most supportive family, students don't always feel comfortable coming out with what they're going through um, because they don't want to disappoint. And, and I know in Brian's case, and a lot of the students with whom I've spoken, um, it's as much they don't want to disappoint themselves. Um, Brian wanted to graduate from this Ivy League university and become um, a, a powerful person in New York City and, and be that um, star you know, in the community that he always expected he would be. And so when he started suffering from his mental health disorder in his freshman year, um, to him that meant that there was no hope and that he couldn't be successful um, because God forbid we've ever seen anybody successful really talk about their mental health issues. And, and again, Kimberly spoke about some of those powerful names who have been incredibly successful, um, and yet very few of us know that these people have been diagnosed with mental health issues. Really what we see instead is um, the tragic but violent and, and um, abnormal ac actions that will, that will sometimes occur um, when connected with mental health, when we see people on the street or, or we um, see what's been happening in the media recently around Newtown and, and Aurora and others. Um, but the fact of the matter is most people with mental health issues go on to live very successful lives and are, are thriving and um, contributing members of the society. Um, and yet, as young adults, you never hear that. You never see that. And so when you start struggling, you don't think there's any hope for you. And, and that's what Brian shared with us. Um, Brian ended up taking a voluntary leave of absence from, from Columbia came home, um, started in very intensive care. It was at that point um, in his senior year that we learned as his family what he was going through and what he had been going through. Um, unfortunately, at that point, it was really in some ways too late, and we were able to control a lot of um, the psychosis that he was also experiencing, but we could never really control that depression. He had spiraled down to a point where he really didn't feel like there was any hope. Uh, and in my freshman year of college, when Brian was 22, he took his own life. Um, as you can imagine, as for any of you who have been uh, been touched by suicide, um, it was the worst part of my life ever. Um, and at the same time, it has helped me understand better who I am um, now as an only child and, and who, who am I as Allison as opposed to Allison and Brian. Um, and then I really dove into research, and what I learned was just how prevalent these mental health issues are, um, especially among young adults. And the fact that Brian first started experiencing 
depression and psychosis in his freshman year of college was actually pretty typical. And it scared the living daylights out of me because we had gone to a top-notch high school. We were both in Ivy League universities and nobody had ever taught that to me. I had to do my own research to learn that depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, eating disorders, you name it, generally first present in the high school and the college age. And there's any variety of factors. It's a combination of biological factors and, and social factors and stress. But the fact of the matter is that wasn't atypical. And it scared me because I realized, A, it could have been me, and B, it was probably a lot of my peers on my campus at Penn at that very moment. Um, and so from there, Active Minds was born. One of the things that we learned after um, Brian came home and, and after he took his life was that his friends at college had noticed some changes in him. While he hid everything from us, while he was on breaks and when he talked to my mom on the phone, um, his friends who spend 24-7 with him noticed that he would show up at some rehearsals and not really acting like himself, just, just acting differently. Um, but Brian was hiding it, um, and they wanted to respect him. And so since he was hiding it, they thought they should hide it too and not say anything to him about it because there's this, this question of, well, if you don't say anything, I don't say anything, and then it's not a problem. Um, and so the concept of Active Minds to me was this notion that not only does this information have to get out there and should students not have to find this out themselves by doing their own research the way I had, but it has to come from students. Research shows that young adults, when they are impacted by a mental health issue, depression, psychosis, suicidal thoughts, they turn to a friend before they turn to anybody else. And even if they don't turn to a friend, you better believe that their friends have noticed that something is not going on. But no young adult knows what to say. Nobody has taught them in health classes, in orientations, or anything what to say. And that's changing, I should say. Um, but at that point, nobody was teaching that. And so the concept of Active Minds is to empower students to share their experiences, to tell their stories, to learn more about mental health issues, and where to get help from peers. As I said, um, I, I started Active Minds on my campus at the University of Pennsylvania when I was an undergrad. Um, and then when I graduated, I started the nonprofit in order to develop and support other chapters of that student group on other campuses. Um, we are now 10 years old. We have chapters on um, just over 400 campuses around the country, um, including um, many chapters right here in the Atlanta area. And it's so exciting for me to have so many Active Minds folks here in the audience. Um, you know, what our goal is with Active Minds is to change the conversation about mental health. And what that means, first and foremost, is to start a conversation about mental health. I guarantee you that by sharing the story that you have, every time I share my story, and I speak proudly of my, my life with Brian, and who he was, and who he continues to be in my mind, every time I share his story, everybody around me has a story too. And four out of five of them come up and share it with me. And I love hearing it. But what pains me is that I'm often the first person they've ever shared their story with. And the fact of the matter is, I'm not the only one who's experienced this. One in four Americans has a mental health disorder at any given time, which means that every single person and every single family is impacted. Um, so I encourage you, as part of the Active Minds theme, is to start a conversation about mental health. Go home, if you are a parent, go home and talk to your child about mental health issues you may have experienced. It's gonna make them feel so much better about sharing with you stuff they may have gone through. The next piece is just to be very wary and conscious and careful about language. Uh, and, and I could go on and on about language. I don't have as much time as I'd like to, to do so. Um, but I would say, 
we all have to remember that mental health disorders are just as real as physical health disorders, that nobody chooses to have depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or think about suicide. Um, it's not their fault. Um, as I, I heard in my family when my brother was struggling, it's not something that somebody can just pull themselves up from by the bootstraps. And at the same time, while we would never um, talk ill of somebody who has cancer or who has diabetes, we have to respect the individual who has a mental health disorder. So somebody may have bipolar disorder, he or she is not bipolar. We can't identify people by their mental health diagnoses. We have to instead identify them as people who may have a mental health diagnosis. Um, I will speak often of the fact that my brother died by suicide. He didn't commit suicide. He didn't commit burglary, perjury, another crime. We have to think about how we talk about suicide and mental health issues the same way we talk about other means of death and other, other mental health issues. The other piece that I would just encourage for you to do as you leave is to take a look at the times that you use the words crazy, psychotic, wacko, nutso, lunatic, all of those words. Um, because every time I hear that word, I think of my brother, and it hurts me. And, and again, I encourage you to not only think about my brother, but think about the people or person in your life. There's so much that we can do as individuals to change the way society views mental health issues, to make this a more open world um, for young people like Kimberly and the other students who are part of Active Minds and students we've not been able to touch yet, to know that it's okay to talk about what they're going through, to know that it's okay to seek out services on their campuses and their community and talk to their family, and to know that it's okay to um, have a mental health disorder and that there is hope and that having a disorder is not a life sentence um, and that you can go on and live um, a successful life. So I'm going to end there and turn it over to Dr. McLeod. Well, I will start by saying thank you. That's That was wonderful. And uh, you, you know we've talked a little bit, and uh, you are one of my heroes. I didn't use that word, but you are. And there are other people in this room. Kimberly's one. Some of our Active Minds folks over here. Sarah's one. Um, these are folks that are not shy about talking about mental illness and how it's impacted them personally and in their families. And uh, I have a very privileged job. I work as a psychotherapist on a college campus, and I think I'm extremely lucky to be able to do that. Why it's privileged is because I get the opportunity to meet people who are uh, struggling and yet heroically doing okay and being successful. And they come into my office and they tell me things they don't tell anybody else. And uh, I feel like that's a privilege. Um, and um, it's something that I do not take for granted. And one of the things I'm, I wanted to tell a couple of stories, I like telling stories. My dad was a minister and he liked telling stories. We're from South Alabama. People from South Alabama <laughs> like to tell stories. Um, and my, my first one, I think, will end up with a connection with Active Minds, Allison. Um, uh, the first one has to do with a student uh, that came to Emory probably around 2002, 2003. Her name is Molly Harrington. Um, she's okay with me using her name. Um, and she came to the counseling center with, at Emory University, which is a fairly well-funded counseling center even at that time, but it was very overwhelmed at that time of the year. And uh, she came and had an intake, and the person who did intake supposedly told somebody to give, give Molly a call, and that message got lost. And Molly never got called. And Molly was an older student. She was late 20s, which is not typical of a freshman at Emory. And uh, she'd run political campaigns. She knew what she was doing, and she gave the director a call, which was me at the time. She said, I'd like to have a conversation with you. And she came to my office and explained um, what happened, and we had a talk. Well, Molly is a very special person. Tom Forneman's here. I think, Tom, you know about you, Molly. 
She's a special person. Um, and we had, we probably talked for an hour and a half. And the result of that was Molly decided during that first summer that she was there to do a project that I supervised along with a fellow from the Ethics Center, but Molly pretty much did it. Um, and she used that summer and then the following year to really galvanize the university using some uh, of folks from the uh, paper in a way that I'd never even, the newspaper, the student newspaper. Robbie Brown was, was going to be here. I think he wasn't able to be here. He was the editor. He now works for the New York Times. Did a story on the Counseling Center, which was a little bit difficult for us to see because it was, it was talking about some of the stresses that we were enduring. The result of that was that we had a meeting with the very new president, President Wagner. Molly set it up, of course. <laughs> Um, and the result of that meeting was that President Wagner um, set up a five-person committee that was called the Mental Health Task Force, and the Mental Health Task Force met for about six months. Tom was on that, that task force um, and came up with a very specific plan for our president um, to increase uh, outreach, to teach people in the community how to, be, to recognize students who might be in trouble, how to be active in intervening, um, to, uh, not stand around and not, not take an active uh, role in helping kids or, or even faculty or staff, colleagues, get the help that they need and know where to send them. Um, and that we were going to need some extra staff members, some extra professional, professional staff to deal with the increase that we thought we would have. Uh, President Wagner, uh, his, the, the day of his inauguration was the day we had our last on-campus public suicide. And it was very tragic, very public. He had to deal with it, and that got his attention, and so he was very much supportive of our efforts. And the result of that was a mental health and counseling fee that was assessed to every student. It's a per, now it's $58, per, $58 per semester. I know because my son's a student now and I get the bill. It says mental health and counseling fee on the bill. After the trustees uh, passed it, I ran into Laura Hardiman, who's right here in the front row, and we had a conversation about it. I was so excited. I don't know if you recall this. <laughs> I was so excited. And she said we specifically wanted it to say mental health and counseling fee because at Emory University, we want people to know that we can talk about these things. That's part one. Part two, which has to do with active minds. Um, our active minds group, um, it, the last few years, has been, had incredible leadership and really incredible support um, from Rachel Datz, who works for you. And we uh, decided to have a Southeastern uh, Regional Conference last semester, no, spring semester of last year. Uh, in that conference, we had some, uh, we had Kimberly was there um, um, talking as, as part of a panel, which I'll mention later, but we also had researchers come in and talk to us about uh, some of the research they were doing in the area of, of mental illness, mental health. Uh, Billy was there talking some and showing some of his pictures. It was a great conference, the best conference I've ever been to, I believe. But the reason it was the best is because we had three students who, Kimberly was one, Sarah was one, and there was another gentleman, and there were three people, three students, talking in front of their fellow students about their struggles with mental illness. And I'm in the back thinking, holy cow, I have died and gone to heaven. <laughs> And, and yet, really, if you think about that, why is that so hard? I mean, and I mentioned, we were talking about this in the introductory meeting at our Active Minds. Why is it so hard to talk about mental illness? It's not hard to say, I've got a sore throat, and it's really not that much different. I mean, why would we expect anybody to go through life without having a mental illness? We all have, men we all have physical illnesses. It's part of living. 
So we all struggle with these kinds of things, whether we label it mental illness or anxiety or depression or you can't go to sleep, that's me. Um, why can't we talk about it? And, if we, and, and, we, and yet we all carry around with us this, I will label it stigma, this feeling that we have when people act differently or when people talk about their mental illness, like the kid who's up in the, in the uh, video who's standing on his desk. Oh my goodness, this is different. Mm -hmm. um, we gotta get rid of that and we gotta find ways to have these conversations like we're having now in a different way. I, I, do we have time for about five more minutes? I'm, I, I haven't, one more minute, okay. <laughs> I gotta tell a person, this is a personal uh, uh, disclosure, okay? This has to do with bystander apathy. This is the, 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 the feeling that we have that keeps us from intervening. And I had just been on a panel at our law school talking about bystander apathy and how important it is for us not to be apathetic and all that kind of stuff. A couple of days later, I'm walking through our, one of our public uh, 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 buildings that a lot of students travel in, and there's an enclosed um, stairway, stairway there, it's cocktail. And um, there's somebody in the, and I'm walking by, and there's somebody in that hallway that is just screaming and yelling, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are they okay? And I'm, and I'm walking on thinking that, and I keep walking. And then I, there's a little voice in my head that says, Mark, you are the counseling center, I mean, you're the director of the student counseling center. If you're not going to do it, who the heck is going to? I didn't say heck, I said something else. But, and so I stopped. And I walked around to come up the stairway so I could get an eye on what was going on, uh, just in case there was something dangerous going on. I, the guy was there, and he was, he was really ecstatic and going on, going on. And I went up and just touched him on the shoulder and said, are you okay? And he says, I'm so sorry. I just got accepted to my internship, and I'm just going out like <laughs> but, but why, you know, here we can have this conversation, but why is it so hard for us to take that step. And we've got to figure out a way to make it easier for all of us too. And we're working on that at Emory. And I think, I really think colleges and universities are getting there. I think there's a lot of, a lot of us that are, are trying to provide uh, at our universities a model that I think the real world could use that has to do with what we used to call community mental health centers. And I'll stop with that. Do you want some water? <laughs> so we have 20 minutes to answer some of your questions. We have had folks following us on Twitter and on the web, as well as you all here. And Somebody must have been reading my mind because they grabbed the question that I mentioned I wanted to start out with. And it really, it, it's prompted by something somebody um, who lives with a very serious mental illness told me. And he said, you know, in all the years I've lived with serious mental illness, nobody has asked me, how did I recover? They just want to know the details of my illness and the sensational stuff. I think that is such an important question, and that's what I want to ask you and what an audience member wants to ask. Kimberly, what would you say were the key factors for you to be able to recover? Oh, goodness. Um, one of them, certainly, we talked about this already, being the support from my family. I think um, the other 
main factor was treatment, actually getting help. And that allowing myself to go in and sit down with different therapists and talk things out really allowed me to um, remind myself that I have a purpose in life. And I couldn't be down on myself for the rest of my life because I was diagnosed with a mental illness. So when I had that, that long period of depression and I was literally on the floor trying to journal things out and figure things out, um, definitely the main factor was accepting that I had the mental illness and then going to seek help to do something about it. And in talking with therapists and counselors, I found out I still have a life to live. Um, Billy, as someone with experience documenting both mental illnesses and other diseases, what would you say are the biggest differences between the two in terms of recovery and help seeking? Well, between the two, if you mean people with HIV, AIDS, and mental illness, I think the, the connection is, was the stigma at the time. So one of the biggest issues was getting past that. The people that I photograph with the AIDS project um, are almost all gone now because it was before the cocktails and all of that, so there was no recovery at the time. And that made the stigma particularly onerous on them. I've done projects on kids with cancer and people with disabilities and, and uh, to a, uh, the, the, the difference. I, I don't know that there is a difference on that level, but I'll tell you that when I started working on this project, I was concerned about how I was going to find people. And when I just put it out there a little bit with social media, people, it, it's like they came out of the woodwork. Uh, all, you hear all these statistics, but then you put out there that you're interested in it, and I had a lot of friends immediately contact me and say, well, you know, there's somebody in my family that's like this. And I was looking for a very specific age group, too. And, and uh, actually, Gracie, the first person that I interviewed, is the daughter of a friend of mine from college, and she wanted to participate. So, you know, to, to say there's a difference, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the right way to present it, because the fact of the matter is, and I think what we're talking about is it's, it's not that different. It's a different kind of illness. It affects your mind and, and uh, how you can get through the day. But, and I, like, I really liked what you were saying about, about you know, your brother um, wasn't bipolar. He had bipolar disorder. It's not like you say, oh, this person's cancer. It, it is. It's a labeling. It, it was an interesting thing to hear. And, and, and I think it's a reminder, as I'm working on this project, and now that I'm partnering with Active Minds, they have taught me so much about um, how to write these stories up. And I've, and I've gone back and rewritten some of the stories because my language, my normal language, I, I was not tapped into that. The second I heard it, I got it. I understood it, and I changed it. And um, so I think that's something we can all sort of keep in our minds and, and help the conversation along in a more, in a more positive light. I don't know that that answered that particular question, but... I think you did a good job. Okay. Uh, this one's for Kimberly, but I, I ask that Dr. McLeod and, and Allison jump in here, given your experiences working with so many college students. But in your case, Kimberly, how did your friends 
manage your mental health challenges? How are friends supports um, or maybe present additional challenges and were they able to support you? Um, I know initially it was very hard for them to accept that I had a mental illness and that I was away from them for a long time, but I think I mentioned earlier that Active Minds has definitely given, given me a platform to become really the, spokesper the spokesperson that I am today about mental health. And in doing that, being able to explain the particulars of mental health to my friends, they now understand what I'm going through and they, they're interested. Some of them are watching now. So it really helps to get involved. The question, going back to the question about recovery, doing what I'm doing today is helping me recover. Knowing that I'm helping someone else is helping mm -hmm. me recover. So to have my friends here in the audience and those watching, for sure, they've definitely warmed up to what I've been through. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the role of friends or families and support systems? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. I have a two-part answer. The short answer is the thing that we tell students the most and as peers is that um, as a friend, your job is not to make somebody, your friend, feel better. We're, we're not trained for that. Active Minds doesn't do mm -hmm. that, but in general, what you can do is go up to them and say, is everything okay? You, you don't really seem like yourself. Are you doing okay? Can I call the counseling center for you? Can I walk you over there for your appointment? Um, what, what a burden that takes off of an individual when a friend just comes up to you and says, are you okay? Um, I have one little anecdote too, um, and, and it's to the point where I see in so, in so many ways that there's a generational shift happening. Um, my anecdote comes uh, immediately after my brother died, and I remember sitting in my mother's living room with my friends and his friends. Again, I was 18, he, he was 22, so um, of this age, and, and we sat in silence for what seemed like forever, and then finally uh, a friend of mine said, broke the silence and said, Allison, we don't know what to say, how, how can we help you? Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, the months proceeding uh, my brother's death, uh, my mother lost a lot of her friends, and, and it wasn't vindictive, um, but it was, they mm -hmm. also didn't know what to say, and they, and they shied away from it. And so this generational shift is one where students mm -hmm. care, they wanna know. Active Minds has grown to 400 chapters, not because I have any sort of marketing budget, but because <laughs> students are coming to us and saying, this has impacted me, this is impacting my friends, my family, I wanna do something about it, I wanna learn more, I wanna both share my story, help my friends, um, and so in so many ways, friends are not only um, the, the crutch and, and the, the individual who's seeing you know, friends go through this, but they just, they're so hungry for this information. And so I would encourage anybody who's in, in the place to, you know, if you have middle school, high school, college students either under your care or you're a parent of them, give them this information because they're seeing it in their friends um, even more readily than you, they see it in themselves and they're hungering to, to be of support. And as Kimberly said, not everybody's there. I mean, not everybody um, understands it or wants to get it, um, but so many more young people do than, than we realize, and we just need to give them kind of information. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree, and I would add that uh, most colleges and universities are working very hard with whatever, resource, whatever resources they have to educate. You can't edu we can't educate every single student, but all those students that are going to be involved with other students who are leading organizations, who are resident advisors and residence halls, we focus our efforts on teaching those students and also faculty and staff who are in key areas to both identify students that are at risk, know how to talk about it, 
get rid of some of the stigma, and also have the knowledge to know how to get in touch with people who can help. And on campuses, that's generally the counseling center. Mm -hmm. Dr. McLeod, you touched a little bit on uh, what Emory has done at the policy level to support counseling and counseling services. And this question is really for any of the panelists, but what kind of policies do we need in place to promote mental health and provide adequate treatment and services at the community, state, and national levels? Big question. <laughs> but I think it's a really important one and that one, again, folks can go home tomorrow and really start thinking about and maybe doing something about. I have a, I have a, a response, because uh, I've, th I've thought about this quite a bit. Um, one, I think prevention is really critical. And there's, a, um, Kathy Culbinson's here from Chris Kids, who, mm -hmm. who uh, runs a really wonderful organization that works with kids at all ages who've been abused and troubled and have mental illnesses and, and, and you name it. And they provide the support that they need at a very early age. Um, and I also think that colleges and universities, each one has a kind of a different way of, of doing this and that the, the real world can learn from them. I think we've, I hope we could figure out a way, I mean, that's kind of what universities are about, training folks like Kimberly who can go out and Allison who can go out and make a difference in the world. And we have some models that we're using, um, gatekeeper training and, and reducing bystander apathy and, and reducing stigma and encouraging people to talk but we got to have resources, and I don't see that happening in the real world either right now. Okay. Anything else folks would like to add? I, I would just underscore, um, as Dr. McLeod said, prevention, and we talk too little about prevention, and, and it is so important to remember that mental health is a public health issue. It's not an issue that just sits with the counseling center or just with therapists or psychiatrists. It's a public health issue, and so if we can learn from what campuses are doing um, where it's not just the counseling center anymore, it's the coaches, it's the RAs, it's the students themselves, who, the university president, who are engaged in conversation and, and um, kind of dialoguing around mental health issues, if we move that into the community, um, it, we have to start with prevention. Mental health issues, um, there, there are proven prevention practices, and we know that mental health and mental illness first present the young age, 15 to 25. This is a, a disorder, diseases um, that affect young people. And so if we can get to elementary, middle, high school, college students um, and help them get the support and the treatment that they need as early as possible, the chances of, light, of recovery are that much more likely. So it's prevention, prevention, prevention. Okay. Well, you know, when you're talking about policies and all that, and I think the one place where, where there's a disconnect is in the health insurance industry and where mental illness is treated differently than physical interest. And that's the whole conversation is, is why, should, why should it be separated from any other kind of illness? And yet it is, and hopefully that will get better. But mm -hmm. I think that's a big issue. Um, I know that uh, some people uh, here tonight might have someone in their life that needs treatment, is not getting treatment. So I think this is an important question, uh, and again, it's for anyone. Is it a requirement that the person someone believes needs counseling or treatment asks for it themselves, or can an advocate call on their behalf? Or, and I'll add, what can an advocate do for someone that's not seeking treatment currently? That's a hard one, I think. Mm -hmm. it, it, uh, ha being in relationship with the person, having conversations with the person, being 
listening, know, all the things that we teach, um, walking over with them. We often have people walk over with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just, you can't make them go, though. I mean, and even if you make them go, once they walk in our door, they generally are not too cooperative if you've made them go. It's not always the case, but um, it's, it, I think, I believe in the power of relationships, I do, and I think you have to use the trust that you have with that person. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear what other people think, too, on the panel. Though. Um, yeah, I think on my, on my college campus, especially at Georgia Perimeter College, when we were actually having a seminar um, not too long ago about toxic relationships, and I always, wherever I am, if I'm in a seminar on campus, I always plug our counseling services. I always make it a point to say it's available to you, and it's free, and it's totally confidential. Um, in this last seminar, we had um, a few girls kind of, they, they asked about it, and our counselor was there, and they were like, well, you know what, I should make an appointment with you. And I'm like, you know what, while she's here, do it. <laughs> and I stayed in there, and I watched them walk up to her and make the appointment, and I could only hope that they would actually go and get the treatment. But the fact that, you know, I'm saying I've gone, I've been there, I walk in and out of there every so often, I hope that that kind of eases their discomfort. One little yes. thing that I would add, which doesn't really answer the question, but I always feel like I need to say it. Um, it's really important as caregivers to take care of yourself, too. Um, so there's so much, only so much that you can do, and, and you keep thinking about the person that you love who's struggling and suffering, and, and yet at the same time, you're, you have so much of a burden yourself. And so... Um, I just I make the, I, I would make that plug. You know, there's a national suicide prevention hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, that anybody can call um, if they are struggling. But you can also call if there's somebody in your life who you think is suicidal because to, to get some help to figure out what to say and how to say it. Um, and as a caregiver, as a sibling of somebody who's been through it, I, I recognize, um, you know, the pain that, that, you, that you're under and what the family is under as well. So um, it's not just the, the person necessarily with a diagnosable mental health disorder um, who deserves treatment. We all deserve to talk about it. I, I'm a big fan of everybody going to therapists at some point in their lives. Like, why the heck not, right? So, um, but just to remember that, it, that the burden is on, on all of us. Mm -hmm. And it really goes back to what, to, to what Kimberly was saying, you know, that we all have mental health. Uh, we all have to mind our own mental health, um, and we're operating on that continuum all of the time. So it's really important, the self-care as a caregiver. Um, you all are doing inspiring work and telling inspiring stories. Uh, what gets you up in the morning? You know, this is a tough issue, um, and there are a lot of challenges and you know, working around stigma and discrimination and helping people better understand. What inspires you to continue um, this work? Well, to me, it, it, what, one of the things that Mark said resonated with me. It's like the, the privilege of having people tell their stories to you that are, that are very personal, very poignant, um, sometimes harrowing stories and and they don't know me and I come in and because 
you know, it strikes me that people just, they want somebody to listen to what they've gone through and in this mental health issue where there's so much stigma and so they can't talk to everybody. This is a way for them to get their story out to people in an honest way. So that, that whole idea of people sharing such important things with them, and it's changed me. It's a, you, you hear these powerful stories. I'll, I'll mention that you, you had mentioned one of your heroes being Sarah, who's in the audience tonight. And she's one of the people that I, that I interviewed and, and uh, did a story on for the project. And so I would uh, encourage you to go to the website, which is a part of Active Minds website. I think they've given you all the, the link to it. And uh, read Sarah's story and watch her video. And you'll see um, something about the power of life and the, <clears throat> and the incredible pull to live that um, some people get very close to the edge of, and they fight back. And that's mm -hmm. what Mark was talking about, heroism. And anytime you see a heroic story, you're, you're always moved, you're always touched. And I'm able to, to go in and not only hear the story, but be a witness to it. And you, that's, that gets you up in the morning, it really does. Um, I'll just go back to purpose, I think. Um, I've just been fortunate enough to sort of have this relationship with God and tap into my purpose. And advocating mental health is one of my purposes. And the video that we showed and all of that now has nothing to do with me. I've said many of the same things over and over and restated my story mm -hmm. over and over. So that, for me, all the therapy... I've gotten for that is pretty much done and over, but it's really for those, whether it be one person or 1,000 people, for those who need the information and who can learn something or go out and get help after hearing my story. So just purpose wakes me up every morning. I will say it differently, but I'm saying exactly the same thing to start. <laughs> I feel like I'm, when I'm doing this work, I feel like I'm doing what I was supposed to be doing. I feel like it's what God intended me to do. And that's, there are other things that I like doing that God intended me to do, but this is the most important. <laughs> and, and the other thing is I, I have had, before the um, last suicide at Emory, we had a, a run, a pretty, pretty bad run. And, um, at this point, and I, I've mentioned this to other colleagues, I would pretty much do anything I can to keep that from happening again. Mm -hmm. I don't ever want to have to deal with it again. It's too hard. We, have, we do it, and we will, but I don't want to have to. Again, I have a two-part answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, the first is I get to tell Brian's story, and I get to talk about my brother. Um, and as Kimberly talked about how it helps her in her recovery as a suicide survivor. It helps me immensely in my grief. Um, and again, so often we, we talk about suicide as being the non-casserole death, right? So if somebody dies of cancer or another death mm -hmm. and people bring casserole over to your house and yet somebody dies of suicide and nobody shows up. Um, and you don't ever talk about that person ever again. I get to talk about Brian and I get to talk about what, a, what an amazing person he was and, and will continue to be in my life. So that's, that's a piece of it. Um, the other piece, honestly, is Kimberly and all the students that are here, all of the next generation who is making change and who is changing not only their own little families and communities and campuses, 
but are going to graduate and are going to eventually become policymakers and teachers and bankers and uh, parents who are going to change the way we as a society think and talk about and treat mental health issues to give them the same respect that other physical health issues um, have gotten. You know, and it, as we're concluding tonight, it strikes me um, events like this live forever on the web. And my guess is we will have a number of people watching this, this video over time. And I'm wondering if you could just briefly tell those that might have interest in starting an Active Minds on their, on their college campus how they can do that very briefly um, because they won't have access to the materials. Um, for anybody who's interested in learning more about Active Minds, either joining a chapter, starting a chapter, or if you're not on campus but interested in getting to know more about our work, we have community action kits, et cetera, um, you can just visit our website, which is www.activeminds.org. Um, on that, you'll find the Step Inside My Head project as one of our programs, and again, a variety of ways both to volunteer and be a part of Active Minds, whether or not you're a student. And you can find our map of where we have the chapters and find out if there's a chapter near you. Great. And then also in your seats tonight, uh, there were numbers for hotlines and how to get help and advocacy organizations, both at the Georgia state level as well as nationally. And those also are posted in links um, online where uh, you access the webcast as well. So this concludes our event and our web webcast. I'd like to thank each one of our panelists tonight uh, for their insights. And I would particularly like to thank Kimberly for your courage in stepping forward and sharing your story. And I have to give a shout out to Tina Resvani, our interns, and the amazing mental health program staff for all of their work on this event as well. So. Uh, if you're watching us online and, you'd, and you liked what you've seen, remember you can watch all of these programs along with any of our past conversations events on the website at cartercenter.org. I also encourage you to keep an eye out for information about our next conversations at the Carter Center, uh, which is Venezuela's Political Future, which takes place on Thursday, April 18th and that those details will become available in the coming weeks. And if you want to be sure you're getting the latest news about conversations or other Carter Center events and programs, sign up for emails on our website, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and add us to your circle on Google+. Thank you, and have a great evening. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.